0: Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to today, this moment. Really hey, thank you so, so much. You. Um, I am honor. naturally oh, indebted to truly, truly grateful. And the Oscar goes to...
1: Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy award-winning best picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy.
0: Hello. Welcome. Ha ha. Gigi. French. Oh,
1: Gigi. <laughs> <laughs> little girls. Little girls. <laughs> oh, boy.
0: Uh, This is our episode about the 31st Academy Awards and the best picture winning film, Gigi.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This film is awful, y'all. Yeah. uh, It's so bad.
1: So, okay. I I think that of all the movies we watched, this one was one of the worst experiences for me because I had really high hopes going into it. I had pretty high expectations because I, like, have heard of the Broadway production. I've listened to the soundtrack a little bit for, like, the you know, old one. And like Audrey Hepburn played the role on Broadway. Like there's, you know, one Tony's like there was the revival with Vanessa Hudgens recently. Like there's a lot of things that kind of made me seem like, oh, Vincent Minnelli directing another Parisian musical. Sounds great.
0: Well, and there's a lot of things about the history of this that I did not realize, like the order of the events. Like Hmm. this is when the musical originated in this film. The Audrey Hepburn play was just a play oh the okay. original broadway musical didn't come out until the 70s of this
1: <gasps> what yeah oh no wonder i'm so confused okay yeah
0: it makes this make a little bit more sense but okay. also i don't understand like how this was so successful how it yeah. won so many oscars yeah had a clean sweep
1: yep uh, honestly first of all i was bored to death watching this movie And then it was so problematic.
0: So problematic. In
1: so many ways that it was so uncomfortable to watch. And like, none of the songs are compelling. Um, None of the musical numbers are interesting. There's no dancing at all. Yeah. Uh, Which is not a problem. I love musicals that don't have dancing. But
0: Leslie Karen was like a famed ballerina.
1: Yeah. So I was kind of expecting something there. Yeah. And all of the acting was just like blase, whatever. Nothing was good about it, melodramatic. Ugh.
0: so boring yeah and I had like hyped you a little bit because I was like remembering <laughs> that I had liked it when I was a kid and huh. watched it and I was like yeah you'll really like this I remember it being yeah. fun and then it was not fun at all
1: yeah I wonder what you thought what did you think as a kid
0: I don't know I probably just thought it was just a fun musical like any other fun musical when you're but a kid you just hear music and like there's bright colors and yeah. like I don't know I can imagine that I was just like oh fun I don't know I'm guessing I last saw this when I was like 10 yeah you know Mm -hmm. when I did not have that much of an understanding of like good story or like yeah and I was watching so many other musicals at the time like classic musicals Uh because that was just something that we did so to me it probably just like melded into those memories of just like oh I like Hollywood classic musicals (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, and, like, the upside is, like, there's some nice fashion in it. So, like, and pretty colors. So yeah. I guess that's, you know, visually yeah. intriguing.
0: Anyways. Anyways. We'll dig into we it all. We have a whole
1: episode to talk about this.
0: But first, the Penny news. Yeah,
1: the news with Penny. A update. date.
0: Yeah. So recently, Penny was on set. Yeah.
1: <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. she's a star baby
0: yeah she uh, had her debut on a real Hollywood set
1: yeah a big set too yeah it was a big day for her
0: yeah we'll keep the details to ourselves <laughs> um but
1: <laughs> just tease you a little bit
0: <laughs> yeah it was a it was a big thing
1: yeah real HBO show mm-hmm. um you'll probably be able to you know see her she had a pretty
0: Yeah, I hope so. I hope that you, I mean, one thing that people do a lot in Hollywood when you're a person who just exists in LA is do like background work where you're just in the background of random things. And lots of people do it who are not even actors. They do it just as a paid hobby, which is kind of weird, but you don't really care when you're in it. But I do care to see Penny.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you were the one who took her to set that day.
0: Yeah. And it was very fun. Of course, everybody on set loved her of so course. much. Duh. There was one setup that we were doing where, you know, they're putting everything together, getting the camera ready on the dolly. And like the three guys who were all working on the camera team and on the dolly were all like, well, let's stop and say hi to Penny. <laughs> and they all just, in the middle of, getting ready decided that Penny was much more important as always she is and another fun thing for Penny was that at the end of one of the scenes that we were shooting we would end up walking right in front of the lead actress and she just thought Penny was the cutest (laughs) and so at the end of one of the takes she really was interacting with Penny and then she got on the ground and was saying hi and I was like yeah her name is Penny and she just thought that was so cute and so then at the end of every subsequent take she would say good job penny we did it (laughs) (laughs) and then later on that day after lunch she uh was looking for penny and then she saw her and she was like penny and then penny ran over to her and she said this day is the best day because penny's here oh (laughs) of course those of you who know penny know that every day is the best day with penny
1: that's true too true
0: so that's the story of penny on set
1: yeah if she ends up making the episode (laughs) we'll put a little clip of her yeah in like six months
0: (laughs) (laughs) penny a true hollywood star she's
1: a hollywood girl
0: good job penny (laughs) so on to the film uh, first, I will give a recap for those of you who don't know what it's about. Of course, there's basically no plot. But
1: let me start off. Gigi, hon, 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 <laughs> Gigi. that's mostly what the plot is.
0: <laughs> the story follows a sixteen-year-old girl. Keep in mind, sixteen-year-old girl.
1: And keep in mind that there are several songs throughout this film about how young the girls are.
0: Yes, uh, Gigi who has been raised by her grandmother and aunt, and Gaston, a rich social elite and womanizer. After being so unsatisfied by life and women, he suddenly realizes the only female he enjoys the company of is Gigi. He proposes, and she is confused at first, but comes around in the end and decides to marry him.
1: I wonder why she's confused. She's like in high school.
0: Yeah, and going she, to school. And she's like, huh, I never even like thought to think of you as an attractive person or as like Yeah,
1: because he's a- like a mentor to her. <laughs> oh God, it's so
0: gross. It's
1: so gross. <sighs> Anyways. Before we like say actual important things, I just want to say, like, there's films that I've really not enjoyed. Cimarron, Cavalcade, you know, some of these ones that are just boring and
0: Hamlet. <laughs>
1: okay, Zach hates Hamlet, obviously. <laughs> But this one was like up there with those as some of my, one of my least favorites I've seen.
0: Yeah. I ranked it uh, 28th out of our 31 so far.
1: (laughs) I ranked it 27 out of 31. Yikes. Only slightly above Cavalcade, The Life of Emile Zola, Cimarron, and of course, I hated Gone with the Wind, so that's down there for me It was also
0: above Life of Emile Zola for me, (laughs) (laughs) but that is not saying much.
1: No, it's not. And because Life of Emile Zola at least had something important to say. Well,
0: and also this film has so much higher production value than right. all of those do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it And it did so much better critically. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And like actually
0: made money compared to those as well. <laughs> Anyways.
1: Oh, gosh.
0: Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the ceremony?
1: Yeah. I mean, considering all of our feelings about this movie... It makes the ceremony seem even weirder to me. So yeah, let's get into it. So today we are talking about the 31st Academy Awards, which were held on April 6th, 1959 at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood, the RKO Pantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I have mentioned, they're just doing the ceremony in California now, no more bi-coastal, um, but they are still televising. Mm-hmm. This year was hosted by Jerry Lewis, Mort Saul, Tony Randall, Bob Hope, David Niven, and Laurence Olivier. hmm a fun just little fact about this experience is that David Niven actually won Best Actor at wow. this ceremony for the film Separate Tables, making him the only host in history to have won an award at the ceremony he hosted.
0: That is very interesting. Yeah. I think now or nowadays there's no host, but <laughs> I bet like throughout some of like the 90s or like sort of more recent, I feel like that's the only time where really that this could have happened again. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But I feel like the hosts were chosen so much after the fact that, yeah. like, this was never going to happen again. I don't yeah. know. It just seems so odd.
1: Well, and for quite a long time, the host is a comedian or public figure, not necessarily mm-hmm. like an actor. And I think that it's probably pretty intentional who they choose for the host Yeah. to be someone who's not also up for, like, best actor of the night, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> So that's just kind of a funny thing. The other thing that was weird about this ceremony is that, um, so it was produced by a producer, Jerry Wald, who felt really nervous about the length of the show. I've talked about how it like was kind of like tricky with the broadcast and making sure it didn't go over and whatever. Um, So he was super nervous. So he started to cut a bunch of the musical numbers that were planned to be a part of the ceremony. Hmm. Unfortunately, he cut too many. Uh-oh. And they ended up, ending the show 20 minutes too early.
0: Oh, my. And
1: NBC didn't have anything planned. So <laughs> Jerry Lewis tries to fill time. You know, he does his little bits. He does some stand up like he's trying to fill a time. Oh boy. And eventually the NBC executives decide to just run a rerun of a sports review show.
0: Oh, my. Yeah.
1: They like just <laughs> cut to that. Wow. Yeah. So it was kind of a disaster. Yeah. In terms horrible. of like production and uh, huh. that kind of stuff
0: they're uh, not winning an emmy for this broadcast no
1: <laughs> so that was kind of strange and it does like have the record at this point in time for being the shortest at an hour and 40 minutes mm. they had a two-hour block
0: yeah it yeah. would be great if it was uh, under two hours
1: <laughs> <laughs> we would never get to like finish our dinner but
0: it's uh, kind of sad that they cut a bunch of the numbers and then like right couldn't yeah. go back to them exactly Oh, well.
1: Yeah, that's how it goes. So some stuff about this particular ceremony, of course, um, we sort of hinted at this. Gigi broke some records hmm. tonight. Uh, so Gigi won nine Oscars, which were all that it was nominated for. It had a clean sweep. Everything it was nominated for, it won. Yeah. And this record of winning nine Oscars... Beat the previous record that was set by Gone with the Wind in 1939, which was eight Oscars, uh, which was then, of course, tied by From Here to Eternity and On the Waterfront. Uh, But this is the first time that a movie
0: wins more than eight. Also so ridiculous (laughs) that. This now holds the most Oscar wins up to this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's very short-lived because the next uh, ceremony, Ben-Hur breaks this record. Yeah. So it, it's not like it's like a longstanding record, but it was previously. mm mm-hmm. um, Ben-Hur, of course, wins 11 Oscars. hmm As I said, they had the biggest clean sweep at the time. Previously to this, the record for Clean Sweep was held by It Happened One Night, which was five. Mm. Uh, So nominated for five Oscars, won all five Oscars. So Gigi has the biggest Clean Sweep at this time with nine nominations, nine wins. Wow! And that record was tied by The Last Emperor in 1987, not beat, tied, and then finally beat out by The Lord of the Rings Return of the King in 2003, which was given 11 nominations and won all of them. Wow. Which is just such a long time, 1959 to 2003, yeah. clean sweep record. That's crazy. Of course, the other thing about these records is that Gigi is the last film uh, until The Last Emperor in 1987, to win Best Picture without any acting nominations. Hmm. So this has happened a few times before. I've talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Other films that fall into this category, no nominations for acting but one Best Picture, are Wings, All Quiet on the Western Front, Grand Hotel, An American in Paris, another Vincent Manelli musical, mm-hmm. The Greatest Show on Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, Gigi, The Last Emperor, Braveheart, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, oh, boy. Slumdog Millionaire, and parasite oh uh, yeah it hurts every time i say it <laughs> <laughs>
0: well and like we have said before all of those films have really good like compelling performances in them
1: especially the more modern ones yeah I mean, why was mel gibson not nominated why was know. dev patel not nominated for slumdog millionaire doesn't Probably make sense all
0: political reasons we'll yes. get there eventually yeah but...
1: got like 30 years yeah <laughs> that is the Gigi legacy mm. which is quite a legacy yeah this year the oscar for cartoon short subject went to nighty night bugs making it the first time that a bug's bunny cartoon won an oscar
0: oh wow good for them yeah
1: nighty night being like k-n-i-g-h-t-y
0: yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so congrats to bugs he's finally joined uh, the mouse and others mm-hmm. the both mice who have won ah. um and if you remember our last uh, ceremony episode I talked about how the categories at the 30th Academy Awards were condensed. Yeah. They went back
0: on some of them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this was so weird.
1: So they kept a lot of the things that they trimmed down, but they did split two categories. Um, So the category of best cinematography is split back into color and black and white again. And the category of best scoring is split into musical or dramatic slash comedy picture again. Mm. So those two, I guess they just felt... Like, they had to have both still. And in a way, it makes sense. Because with cinematography, it's so different to shoot in color versus black and white. Mm -hmm. And both are, you know, honorable. And then same thing with scoring. Scoring a musical is extremely different than scoring a drama.
0: Yeah, right. So, I get it. Yeah. Uh,
1: The last thing I just wanted to mention about this ceremony is at this ceremony... Sidney Poitier becomes the first Black man to be nominated for Best Actor mm-hmm. with the film The Defiant Ones. Yeah. Um, he does not win, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but he will win in a couple years in 1963 for Lilies of the Field becoming the first Black actor to win Best Actor. Hmm. It is a momentous occasion for that nomination. Yeah, good for him. Well, just to wrap everything up, I wanted to, of course, share all of our award winners. Great. Best Picture goes to Gigi, Arthur Freed, the producer. Best Director goes to Vincent Minnelli for Gigi. Best Actor goes to David Niven for Separate Tables. Best Actress goes to Susan Hayward for I Want to Live!
0: Yeah, really, really, really good film.
1: (laughs) Best Supporting Actor goes to Burl Ives for The Big Country. Best Supporting Actress goes to Wendy Hiller for Separate Tables. Best Story and Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, so in our modern terms, original screenplay, goes to The Defiant Ones. And Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium or Adapted Screenplay goes to Gigi based on the novel by Colette. Best Foreign Language Film goes to My Uncle from France. Best Documentary Feature goes to White Wilderness. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Ama Girls. Best Live Action Short Subject goes to Grand Canyon, Walt Disney. Best Short Subject Cartoon goes to Nighty Night Bugs, as I mentioned. (laughs) Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture goes to The Old Man and the Sea. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture goes to Gigi. Best Song goes to Gigi from Gigi. Oh, boy. Best Sound goes to South Pacific, which was also nominated for stuff at this time. Yeah. Another, like, not great film. But, like, compared to Gigi, I don't know. I'd rather watch South Pacific.
0: Yeah. Uh, South Pacific was also the best-selling film of the year.
1: hmm <laughs> Best Art Direction goes to Gigi. Best Costume Design goes to Gigi. Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to The Defiant Ones. Best Cinematography in Color goes to Gigi. Best Film Editing goes to Gigi. And Best Special Effects goes to Tom Thumb. Mm-hmm. And I feel crazy for saying Gigi that way so many times. <laughs> uh, of course, there is an honorary award given to Maurice Chevalier yeah, boy. for, quote, his contributions to the world of entertainment for more than half a century. He is the French singer, songwriter actor uh he you know came up with the song thank heaven for little girls in this film
0: yeah and he is the plays the old man in the film
1: yeah he's the creepy guy well one of the creepy guys and of course finally there is an irving g thalberg memorial award given out wow to jack l warner Mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh the way that the ceremony shook out of course Gigi takes the night with nine wins but The Defiant Ones also had nine nominations. They were tied for nominations. Unfortunately, Mm. the Defiant Ones only won two awards. Wow. Followed closely by Separate Tables, which had seven nominations and two wins. Mm. Let's take a little break here. And then when we come back, you can tell us about the making of this masterpiece.
0: Oh, boy. (laughs) And we're back time for things about 1958 all right starting with some famous births we have Ellen DeGeneres Pernilla August Ice-T Sharon Stone Holly Hunter Gary Oldman Alec Baldwin Peter Capaldi Andy McDowell Michelle Pfeiffer Drew Carey Annette Bening Kevin Bacon Angela Bassett Madonna Toby Sedgwick Tim Burton Michael Jackson Michael Winslow Chris Columbus Tim Robbins Vigo Mortensen and Jamie Lee Curtis.
1: Wow. Gary Ullman and Ice T are the same age?
0: Yeah. And the same age as Vigo Mortensen and Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis. I did not place the two of them together boy, in time. Oh,
1: boy. I just cannot comprehend the way <laughs> that life works.
0: <laughs> uh, some famous film debuts uh, Patty Duke, Peter Falk, Ian Holm, Jack Nicholson, Christopher Plummer. Vanessa Redgrave, Oliver Reed, Don Rickles, and composer John Williams.
1: Wow. So many of them started so early. Yeah. They've been in the business a long time. A
0: long time. Um, Some deaths this year. Uh, Jesse Lasky, famous uh, old Hollywood producer. Um, He also produced Wings.
1: Wow. Classic.
0: Harry Cohn, founder of Columbia. Mm. So they're all biting the dust, those oldies. About time. (laughs) Mike Todd. You remember me uh, yeah. talking about Mike Todd, <laughs> of course, the guy who invented Cinerama and produced uh, Around the World in 80 Days. I talked about his death in that episode. Um, of course, he died with his friend Art Cohn in A Plane Crash. Ronald Coleman, Robert Donat, who won Best Actor for Goodbye, Mr. Chips, mm. and Tyrone Power. Um, a couple just interesting little news things for this year with the film world. Uh, Samuel Briskin decides to leave MGM and go to Columbia, and Sol Siegel takes over as head of MGM in his absence. Hmm, okay. Joseph Levine, who is a producer, he solidifies major changes in film marketing this year. Okay. Um, with the movie Attila. So he set up this interesting like production company, and it was mostly for distribution in America of foreign films. Okay. So in 1956, he brought Godzilla to the U.S. markets by purchasing the American rights to show the film for $12,000. He then spent about $400,000 marketing the film. Hmm. With the title, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It then made about a million dollars in theaters. Hmm. So that was his first go of it, just to see if it would work. Uh Then he tried again in this year, 1958, with the French film Attila, purchasing the rights for $100,000 and spending around $600,000 on the marketing. Then he made $2 million at the box office. Hmm. He would do this again to really show that it worked in 1959 with the Italian film Hercules, which he purchased the rights to. Um, he spent $120,000 adding new dubbing and sound effects and new title cards for the film, spent $1.25 million on marketing, and then made almost $5 million in the theaters. Oh my goodness. The main reason I'm mentioning this is because this was kind of showing Hollywood that you could spend a ton of money marketing a film, mm-hmm. and that could make it do as well as like spending a lot of money on the film. Uh-huh. It kind of revolutionized the way that like people thought about film marketing and led to a lot of the way that films are marketed still today. So Universal is having some money problems uh, okay. and in an attempt to <laughs> escape these, uh, they decided to sell their studio lot to Music Corporation of America for $11.25 million, then lease the lot back from them for a million dollars every year. Mm hmm. It just allows them to like
1: not have to own it.
0: Yeah. And it gave them like a big chunk of change up front.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, as I mentioned before, South Pacific is the best selling film of the year, making over 15 million at the box office. So, haha. It's uh-huh, a great time great for, for them.
1: controversial musicals.
0: Yeah. Uh, this year we had the 11th Primetime Emmys. And this year was notable just because it was the first year to break everything into genre categories. There's finally enough content oh. on television for them to have different categories for each genre um and father knows best was the first show to be nominated in every major category series writing directing and all four major acting categories
1: oh nice yeah
0: um this was also the year of the 13th tony awards jb wins best play
1: oh that's that old
0: yeah i did not realize And redhead wins best musical Elia kazan wins best director for jb and Redhead wins the most awards with six. The 10th Tony Awards was the first time their ceremony was televised, but because of a strike against the television station in New York that televised it, um, it led to it not being televised for the 11th or 12th, but it was worked out again in time for the 13th. All right. (laughs) So it is now televised again. Okay. (laughs) So on to the film, Gigi. Uh, this film had a budget of 3.3 million and it ended up grossing about 13 million um between its initial release and its re-release in 1966. But it was only the fifth best-selling film of 1958. Hmm. Both Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Auntie Mame, which were both nominated for best picture, grossed more money than it. Hmm, yeah. Um this is considered the last great MGM musical and it's one of the last of the Freed units. Films, Uh, we talked about them when we talked about *An American in Paris*, and it's also one of the last with Vincent Minnelli as well. Mm. So far, up to this point in history, MGM is the only production company to win Best Picture with a musical. This is their fourth and their last. Huh? So they have never won another Best Picture for a musical since then.
1: Wow! Wow!
0: Yeah, pretty Mm. interesting. So this is a very roundabout way of talking about this film. But the original story comes from the writer Sydney Gabrielle Collette, known professionally as Colette. Um, her first four novels, known as the Claudine series, were released under her first husband's name, which was Willie, uh, between 1900 and 1903. He was a publisher and encouraged her writing frequently, and she often credited his support of her talents leading to her success, um, because Mm -hmm. at the time, Mm -hmm. it was not very common for women to be successful writers. He also supported her many lesbian flings, and after their divorce, she dated many prominent women, and Matilda Morny, who was a famous aristocrat and artist living in France at the time, who was assigned female at birth but lived most of their life as a male presenting person under the name Missy, Yissim, which is Missy backwards, Max, or Uncle Max. Um, they often appeared on stage together, and after a kiss on stage during a performance caused an actual riot in the streets, and they were forced to no longer appear together in public, though they did keep up a relationship for another five years. Um, She then married an editor in 1912, but they divorced after her affair with his 16-year-old son, which was her stepson, uh, when she was 51. (laughs) (laughs) There are many, many problematic things throughout the whole experience of this story. Oh, boy. In the 1920s and 30s, she wrote almost exclusively about sexuality and stories of sex workers. Um, Two of her most popular stories from the period were about ailing women, and like, they were much older, who had sexual relationships with very young men, which were based on the affair that she was having currently. Mm -hmm. Um, By the 1930s, she was considered France's greatest female writer ever. In the 1940s, when she was in her 60s, Colette was married to... who was a jewish man don't know how to pronounce his name who was arrested by the gestapo in december of 1941 Um, he was released seven weeks later but she spent the rest of the war with very crippling anxiety that he would be arrested again strangely it didn't stop her from writing lifestyle and fashion articles throughout the war that were published in mostly pro-nazi magazines though
1: pro-nazi magazines yeah what
0: very strange. In 1944, she finally published the novella Gigi, uh, the story she is now the most famous for. Um, Like most of her works, it was about sexuality, this time in a young girl being trained to be a courtesan like the rest of the women in her family, who falls in love with the man she's been assigned to keep company with and they marry. Um, It was based on the life of her friend Yola, a French socialite and courtesan who married Henri Letalier, who was 36 years her senior and owner of Le Journal in France. Mm. What's interesting about this, why I'm bringing all this up, is because the original intent of the story was about somebody who was a courtesan. Basically, in the old French style of this, it was a woman who was trained in all kinds of stuff. Extremely highly educated, good at sex, good at being like... A host. About out about town. Yeah. And basically you would be paid by an aristocrat. And then your job was to basically have very intelligent conversations with them, (sighs) be able to like go about town, hold parties for them, have sex with them, all of this stuff.
1: Huh. So it's like almost like paying someone to be your partner.
0: Yeah. And Did these
1: people marry other people? Or? No,
0: that was the thing that was shocking about the story, that okay. the woman in the story ended up marrying him for love. I see. Okay. Because technically it was like a An job. arrangement. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: The novella was adapted as a French film in 1949, which was directed by a woman, surprisingly enough, Jacqueline ah. Ardrey. It was then adapted for the stage by a woman, Anita Luce, and put up on Broadway in 1951. Hmm. Ardry, at the time she directed the film, was the most prominent post-war French female director, and Luce was the first female staff writer in Hollywood and extremely popular for her comic novel Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The Ah. Intimate Diary of a Professional Lady, which Uh was published in 1925. (laughs) Of course, that has a film adaptation now. In the 1951 stage play, then unknown, Audrey Hepburn was handpicked by Colette herself for the leading role after their meeting on a French film set. Um, Colette ended up dying in 1954, before this film version ever came out, the musical, and she was denied a Catholic funeral because of her numerous divorces, but was given a funeral by the state instead, and she was the first woman of letters in France to receive that honor. Oh, Lots of interesting, <laughs> strange background. What um, a
1: scandalous life.
0: Yeah. So she was kind of a strange woman, uh, a really good writer, very highly acclaimed. And the story seems to have like been of interest to a lot of women.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it.
0: Um, the original film was directed by a woman. Uh, Anita Luce, who was a prominent female writer, decided to adapt the play So now we come to the late 1950s America.
1: And Vincent Minnelli's like, let me get my hands on that. Yeah,
0: and Arthur Freed, who is very problematic. So he decided to propose a musical version of Gigi to Lerner and Lowe in 1954 during their workshops of their new show, My Fair Lady. Freed had been working on a treatment of this story already, but was bumping into the Hayes Code and having trouble figuring out how to get around it, since the main character was supposed to be a courtesan in training.
1: Oh, courtesans are not allowed under the Hays Code. Okay, well... Because they're, like... Gonna have paid sex? Yeah. Got it.
0: Uh, So, on the French film that already existed, and the idea of an American adaptation, Joseph Breen commented at the time, quote... (laughs) The problem is so basic to the picture that we cannot suggest any eliminations which might bring it into conformity with the code.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Once they had already started getting on with the picture in 1955, um, another production code person, Robert Vogel, he sent Freed a list of everything that could be objectionable with the story. (laughs) <laughs> so and with this note, he said, quote, all the characters in the story participate or did participate or intend to participate <laughs> in a man mistress relationship. The heroine is deliberately trained to enter such a relationship shown in detail and with much sympathy. The story indicates that such low relationships are commonly accepted practices. Never is there the slightest indication that such relationships are sinful. Mm-hmm. So that's their problem with it.
1: So the story is the problem. Yeah. (laughs) The thing is the problem.
0: Which is inevitably what led to there being such a bland story because they took all of it out that she was a courtesan in training, you know.
1: I guess that's why I didn't understand.
0: Yeah. So basically, they eliminated all of that and are left with a young girl who's being raised by...
1: A wealthy aunt, maybe?
0: Her aunt and her grandmother, who both were technically courtesans.
1: I didn't know that, though. Right.
0: It's all gone in the movie.
1: Okay. So it's just like a squeaky clean version. It felt to me like- Which has no
0: nuance and is completely boring and utterly meaningless.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just assumed they were aristocrats of some kind.
0: I mean, that's what they're presented as in this musical version. Gilbert Miller, um, who happened to be Colette's widower- He was the last person she was married to. Um, He was the one who produced the play, actually. And he owned the rights to the novella now. And um, Luce owned the rights to the play. Mm. So Miller was hoping to produce his own movie of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, He had won the Tony Award for Best Play in 1950 for the cocktail party, strangely enough. All right. But Freed ended up convincing them both. um, And he paid a total of $87,000 to the both of them for the rights for the film as a musical. Lowe of Lerner and Lowe was very uninterested in working with anyone from Hollywood at the time. Uh, so Freed and Lerner decided to work on the script and the lyrics without him. Lerner wanted Audrey Hepburn to keep the role, especially now that she'd become more famous since the play. But Freed decided he wanted to cast Leslie Caron, who was already contracted with MGM yeah. and had already worked with him and yeah. Manelli mm-hmm. on An American in Paris. They made a bunch of empty promises to Lowe to try to convince him to do the score and finally secured him when they said he could compose the score in Paris and not have to go to Hollywood. <laughs> um, when they finally got about setting the lyrics to music in March of 1957, uh, Marie Chevalier was the only person who'd actually agreed to appear in the film. Uh, Lerner and Lowe convinced Freed to let them meet with Hepburn again about the role, but she declined it. Um, Then they met with Leslie Karen again, who'd recently starred in a London production of the play, Gigi, and it had completely flopped. So she then agreed to star in the film because it was going to be very different from the play. Oh, interesting. She felt that it was going to be different enough that it was like an original piece even. Uh Uh-huh, sure. Which goes to show you like how different the story actually would have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then her singing voice, of course, in the film was dubbed by Betty Wand, why i, I, know. I just she's need just to she's just not know. a good enough singer i guess
1: i i know but like she doesn't dance in it she doesn't she's just acting and she's not even acting that well
0: and you know what's crazy <laughs> is that when they auditioned her she had completely lost her french accent already from living in america oh my
1: gosh. <laughs> what is the freaking point
0: i don't know i mean it was obviously much easier t- for her to be in it because she was an mgm actor yeah i don't know
1: Ugh, this is one of the things that I hate the most about trying to be an actor in Hollywood. But it's also,
0: like... I mean, there could have, and I don't want to speculate, but I'm sure they really liked her for sure. other reasons. I'm
1: sure. She's probably a nice person. She's probably a professional. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know.
0: They did get along with her when they made the other movie. Yeah. So it's like, might as well. I'm
1: not trying to downplay her. I'm trying to say, why not pick yeah. someone who is able to do everything
0: yeah this isn't a weird thing so maurice chevalier is pretty old at this point in this obviously. film obviously um <laughs> and he was cast for a part his own age yes so that's fine mm-hmm. he was supposed to be the actor that she was engaged to in an american in paris
1: Ugh. really yes oh, i talked about gosh. that in
0: that episode i so don't
1: remember that Ugh.
0: that is problematic again another like weird thing attached to this film um, as they finalized the song list, uh, Chevalier inspired them to write a new song, I'm Glad I'm Not Young Anymore, after a conversation in which he admitted that at this point in his life, he was not being wooed by wine or women anymore. He was just kind of tired of that in his old age. They also took a song originally sung by Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady and gave it to Gigi in this film, the song Say a Prayer for Me Tonight.
1: Oh, okay. I could see that.
0: Yeah. Um, Once everyone began arriving in Paris in April of 1957 for pre-production and location scouting, uh, the script was still unfinished. The old man, Honoré, he was now a leading character who had not appeared at all in the novella, and he only briefly appeared in the play. Um, And Gigi's mother, who featured very prominently in the novella and a little bit in the play, had now been reduced to only a few off-camera lines— then when they shot it, only a few off-camera singing notes. So it was her. It was her mother.
1: Okay, so when <laughs> we were watching this, of course, the way that they do this is in random scenes. You just hear this like weird singing, like ha 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 ha, ha. and then they like slam a door.
0: Yeah. To, so like, that was supposed to be her mother. Okay. Who was a like a main character in the novella? Oh, boy. Yeah. Very strange. By July of that year, most of the score was finished and they were starting to shoot, but they were still missing the title song Gigi, the one that would go on to win the Academy Award. Hmm. So this is one of those stories that is like, could this be true? Okay. It seems a little silly. Okay. Uh, the story of this song is that Lerner was sitting on the toilet, and Lo was banging on the piano in the other room when Lerner heard a melody that he liked and ran out with his pants still around his ankles, telling him to play it again. And that's how they wrote the song, Gigi.
1: <laughs> I'm skeptical. <laughs>
0: um, one of the hardest scenes for them to film on location was in Maxime's in Paris, Uh, Because it was filled with mirrors and harsh lighting.
1: Ah, yeah.
0: Not suitable for filming. Um, But they did shoot it there. But when they got back to Hollywood to film most of the other interiors, Manelli was moving on to his next film. So Lerner had Maxime's completely rebuilt on a soundstage at huge expense because he did not like it at Uh. all. So then he had it shot with director Charles Walters, who was MGM's new up-and-coming musical director. And he shot it with longtime MGM musical cinematographer Ray June, who is responsible for the Pretty Girls Are Like a Melody sequence in The Great Ziegfeld.
1: Ah, which is a beautiful sequence. Yeah. That's a great way to talk about Pretty Girls, (laughs) as opposed to this movie.
0: (laughs) I'll just end my little section here uh, with this quote by our... Favorite New York Times critic Bosley Bosley? Crother. I love him. (laughs) He said, and at this point, remember, uh, My Fair Lady has come out uh as a a musical on Broadway. Yeah. By the time this musical is out.
1: Interesting. Okay. He says,
0: quote, a musical film that bears such a basic resemblance to My Fair Lady that the authors may want to sue themselves.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love Bosley.
0: (laughs) Which really colors this film Uh because it makes sense that they would churn out in this very short amount of time this like really lackluster like shadow of what they were working on yeah which was like the masterpiece that is my fair lady
1: yeah well and when we were watching it you know i saw in the opening credits that it's learner low and i kind of like knew that but i also sort of forgot as we were watching it when she's singing the song say a prayer for me tonight she looks like eliza doolittle Mm -hmm. she acts like eliza doolittle and i was thinking that as i was watching i was like i think my fair lady was like on broadway around this time so Mm -hmm. it makes sense that it all happened then
0: yeah that one came out on broadway in 56
1: okay that makes sense so
0: right before this
1: yeah (laughs) yep this is the significantly worse version of that
0: Yeah, he did go on to say, quote, Gigi is a charming entertainment that can stand on its own two legs. It is not only a charming comprehension of the spicy confection of Colette, but it is also a lovely and lyrical enlargement upon that story's flavored mood and atmosphere.
1: (laughs) I like that the novel by Colette is spicy and flavorful. And then this one, he's like, it's fine, it's nice.
0: Yeah, the film now watching it As, like, a modern person, I mean, it's so just, like, problematic and boring and blasé. Yeah. And, like, so unoriginal Mm -hmm. and...
1: I literally could not remember any of the melodies of any of the songs afterwards. It's
0: not worth watching at this point.
1: Yeah. And my guess, I mean, we have to kind of speculate as to why it won. And, I mean, the easy answer is it was very big, spectacle, uh, great costumes. It is very visually beautiful.
0: It's keeping with the last few that won. Yeah, absolutely. That like the biggest spectacle films are winning. Yeah. And that will continue into the next year when Ben-Hur mm-hmm. also wins. So it's like yeah, at this time, they're just awarding and rewarding <laughs> yeah. the most money thrown at the wall with the prettiest product. Yeah. Which is kind of sad because there are a lot of really good films that came out this year.
1: Yeah, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Elizabeth Taylor comes out this year.
0: Yeah, The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier, which is very like political and exploring yeah. racism. Um, I Want to Live, which is also very political and exploring the death penalty and whether or not that should exist. Those films would have won today.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. This one would not have gotten any.
0: It wouldn't even have gotten nominated. No,
1: absolutely not. <laughs> Well, and to me, it seems like this is kind of the only one in that style that was nominated for Best Picture, other than like Auntie Mame has a little bit of spectacle to it,
0: but. Well, and the fact that like South Pacific was not nominated, right. it's clear that they probably just wanted to throw in this one yeah. since they only were able to nominate five.
1: Mm-hmm. I, don't <laughs> I don't know. know. <laughs> it's an off year.
0: Yeah. Well, at the end of every episode, we <laughs> like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film or this episode. What would you like to thank the Academy for?
1: I would like to thank the Academy for one of the first major bumbles of a ceremony. Mm. Um, It's a tradition, you know. We talk about it every year as we watch the ceremony, whether the hosts bumble it or the production quality is terrible. You know, there was a lot of speculation about this most recent year and like the COVID changes and all of these things. And, you know, there's just something that's so charming about a spectacle that like doesn't work out in the end. And so I wanted to actually thank the Academy for Jerry Lewis and for his fine <laughs> efforts to save the sinking ship. <laughs>
0: Good for you. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy for Best Actress winner, Susan Hayward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her performance in I Want to Live, I mentioned it already, is very, very good, Uh, is very moving, it's very important. And of course, she was directed by Robert Wise, who was coming onto a hot streak. Uh, Of -hmm. course, he would direct and win for The Sound of Music, Mm -hmm. which is. Extremely different from I Want to Live, (laughs) but uh, this film is kind of starting his journey into Mm. like mega Hollywood director stardom.
1: Yeah. Stiff competition for the actresses this year. Best actress nominees are Susan Hayward, Deborah Kerr, Shirley MacLaine, Rosalind Russell, and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Power. Yeah. Power.
0: Pretty amazing that Susan Hayward was able to come away with the win. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy for uh, Sidney Poitier's uh, record-breaking nomination. Yay! I'm sad he didn't win, but uh, it's a step, and you know, it's a very, very long journey for getting any black actors the recognition that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is the first step in that category, which mm-hmm. is worth being happy about.
0: Yeah. And I would like to give a thanks for the best live action short subject winner,
1: <laughs> Grand
0: Canyon. Uh, I have seen this, actually, which is interesting. Um, it is a really interesting live action short uh, because it has no like words or dialogue or narration. It is just a film about the Grand Canyon set to a musical score that was composed out of like inspiration from the Grand Canyon. Hmm. And so it's one of their only like live action shorts that was made similar to the way they made their cartoon shorts back in the early days Mm -hmm. where they modeled all of the shots and the action off of music. So the shots of the Grand Canyon really match the music in a really interesting way. Hmm. Um, It's like a weird like turn at like experimental filmmaking in a way (laughs) for Disney If you can go find this somewhere, it's really interesting and worth watching and very not what you think of when you think of Walt Disney films or shorts.
1: It's the uh, original inspiration for the classic ride, Soren. Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, so that's fun. Nice. No uh, thanks for anything having to do with this musical I I see. I have nothing
1: to be thankful for. (laughs) uh yeah nope i got nothing
0: yeah if you couldn't tell we just like did not care about this film at all yeah sorry about it sorry about it and Uh, i know
1: a lot of people like it but i bet it's for the same reasons you mentioned earlier that you thought you liked it yeah
0: and i'm guessing they haven't seen it in a while Uh uh-huh and maybe i don't know if you're just like watching through a bunch of random musicals and like I don't know I can see how you could think oh yeah that's a fun musical if you're just like watching a bunch of random ones
1: indistinguishable from other things or if it's like just on Turner classic movies or something like
0: well and I think that's partly why you didn't realize that the actual Broadway musical didn't come until the 70s yeah definitely I mean the fact that it didn't become a broadway musical first like everything else did yeah or like get turned into a broadway musical right after this mm-hmm. kind of shows that the adaptation wasn't very like i don't know <laughs> yeah it wasn't primed for anything more than it was
1: yeah i would be curious to see the script of the original play that Audrey Hepburn actually was in because i was picturing her in this musical
0: yeah she was just in a play version yeah yeah
1: anyways that's all i have to say about that Uh
0: (laughs) well that's the show folks yeah
1: thanks for joining us
0: yeah and join us next week when we bring you a new academy archives thank you for tuning in to thank the academy you can follow us on social media at thank the academy podcast on instagram
1: and at thank academy pod on twitter if you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave
0: a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us
1: next week on Thank the Academy.